We're now in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, contentment. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we have this confidence that you are our helper and that no one can do any harm to us. We are in your hand and we are in your righteous right hand. You will uphold us and no matter what waves and and tribulation and tumults come our way, we will not fear, we will not be destroyed, we will not lose our faith, our salvation, we will not be destroyed. Father, this is what your word teaches and therefore we pray that we will hear from this passage what it means to trust you and what it means to live a content life, being satisfied with the things that you provide us. Teach us to be this way, to be simple and satisfied with what you give us. In the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. In this passage, we continue with another exhortation or another commandment to be free from the love of money. Our character should be free from the love of money. Remember that he is now teaching us how to live day by day based on the faith that we already have from chapters 1 to 12. Based on the faith in Christ, our Lord and Savior, then if we belong to Christ, how shall we live? We should love the brothers in verse 1. We should not neglect strangers in hospitality. We should remember prisoners, those who have been persecuted and put in prison for the name of Christ. And in verse 4, we should keep marriage holy, undefiled, because God will judge fornicators and adulterers. Now he turns his attention to money. Money. The love of money is, as it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Well, this here, in this passage, our apostle does the same. He reminds us that we should not love money. Instead, we should trust God for all things. Trust Him, the great Creator, the great Redeemer, who provides for everything that we need. He will take care of us. Now, as we look more carefully at each of these words and phrases of our verses, notice first, he says, let your character be free from the love of money. Our character. What is the character of a person? The character of a person is the way he behaves, his conduct, his daily living. What is it that characterizes or describes the way he is from day to day? Our character in the scriptures is an important facet of our Christian life, a very, very important facet or characteristic of our Christian life. From Ephesians chapter 2, 8 to 10, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, he says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ, all because of all the goodness and grace that God has poured out upon us. However, verse 10 of Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them. Now that we are in Christ, God has good works for us that he has prepared that we should walk in them. So if we're practicing good works, then that will be a part of our character. Being a part of our character, one of the major aspects is the practice of good works. Not evil works or bad works that we used to practice, but good works. This should be a part of our character. Romans chapter 12, also. Romans 12, 1 and 2, the apostle teaches us the same. Romans 12, 1 and 2. After describing how we are saved and what God has done for us, in chapter 12, 12 to 16, he then teaches us how to live. And the basis of how we should live, the premise of how we should live, is explained in verses 1 and 2. He says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, the mercies that he just explained, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Because of the mercies of God, we, our whole bodies, should be presented to him as a living and holy sacrifice. This is what is acceptable to God. This is our spiritual service of worship. Not the physical animal sacrifices, but a spiritual service of worship is giving to God our whole self. Our whole being belongs to Him. And now we know that in Christ it already belongs to Him, but practically, how is it manifested? How is it demonstrated that we truly belong to Him? Verse 2 says that we are not to be conformed to this world anymore. We are not to be conformed to this world because the world, they love riches. The world, they love fame. The world, they love to pursue fun in ungodly ways. This is what the world does, fame, fortune, and fun. But we're not to be like that, conformed to the world anymore, but we are rather to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Our mind is to be transformed. And how will our mind be transformed? We will be transformed by knowing the Word of God, reading the Word of God, studying the Word of God, and praying to God that He might fill us day by day and control us day by day by His Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of grace who is dwelling within us. This is how our mind is renewed, through prayer and dependence on the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that teaches us what God believes, what God thinks, what God wants us to do. After all, once we are converted, do we not say, now that I know God, now that my eyes have been opened, shall I not do what is pleasing to Him. And this is what he is teaching us here, that we should be pleasing to Him by our minds being renewed, because our minds were corrupt and dead and perverse, wanting the things of the world. But now we are to prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Doing the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect, but it must be proven, it must be demonstrated, it must be manifested in our life. We now are convinced that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. Before we knew Christ, we thought the will of God was a big burden. We thought it was a thousand pounds on our shoulders. We thought, no, you can't have any fun. You can't have any happiness. You can't have any joy doing God's will. No. But now we don't think that way. Now we believe it is good, 
acceptable, and perfect. So our character should be manifesting that. Another place where our character is described, both pre-Christ and post-Christ, or in Christ, is Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. 417. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Describing our old ways in verse 17 and following, he says that the Gentiles, that is the people of the world, the pagans, the idolaters, and the fornicators of the world, this is how they are still. But he says that we are not to walk that way anymore. We're not supposed to conduct our life that way anymore. Our character should not be like that anymore because people like that have a futile mind, verse 17. People like that are darkened in their understanding. People like that are excluded from the life of God. People like that are ignorant. People like that have a hard heart. And in verse 19, they are callous, and they are so callous in their conscience that they give themselves over to sensuality. Sensuality is the senses, right? The five senses. So whatever your eyes want to do, whatever your mouth wants to do, whatever your ears want to do, whatever your bodily body wants to do, you just indulge in it and do it as much as you want without any self-control. They give themselves over to sensuality and for the practice of every kind of impurity. Things that you would never imagine, you could never imagine. If you investigate, you know, or if you used to live that way, or you have friends who still live that way, they are very, very creative, very, very inventive of every kind of impurity, all kinds of lust, all kinds of corruption, all kinds of impure lifestyles. This is what they do with greediness. Greediness. Greediness is the opposite of the contentment that we mean. Greediness is wanting more and more and more and more. Covetousness is wanting what somebody else has and wanting it for yourself. But greediness exclusive of things that somebody else has. it is just more about wanting so much of whatever it is that is on your mind that you are full of it and you are constantly pursuing those kinds of things. Greediness. But we're not to be that way anymore. We are supposed to be content. And our character, what is our character supposed to be? He says in verses 20 to 24, just like Christ. Verse 20, but you did not learn Christ in this way. When the true gospel was preached to the Ephesians, he's telling the Ephesians, when I preached the true gospel to you, I did not teach that Christ was that way. I taught the very opposite of that. 
Christ never lived that way. And those who attach themselves to Christ, those who belong to Christ, those who have joined themselves to Christ by repentance and faith, they didn't learn that that's the way the Christian life is supposed to be. They didn't learn that that's the way your character is supposed to be. In fact, they learned the very opposite. In verses 21 to 24, he describes it in terms of our old self, our old man, our old heart, our old uh, creation. That's the way we used to be. But now we have a new heart. We are a new creation in Christ. We have a new man. We are a new self. We have new aspirations, new values, new pursuits. We have heaven. We are living for heaven. And this is what he describes in 21 to 24. This is the way we are supposed to be constantly renewed and thinking about the way Christ is that we might be like him in all purity and perfection. Not that we will obtain it, yet we should strive for it. Strive for it. Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Strive for this in our Christian life until our last breath. Further now in Hebrews 13, he tells us that our character specifically, specifically now, our character should be free from the love of money. Free from the love of money. If you see the way many, many sins are practiced, you can boil it down. Not all sins, but many sins. You can boil it down to money, the love of money. The way that people live their life day by day, it is the love of money, not the use of money, which is, has a biblical place, but it is the love of money that is sinful and wrong and shows we are not content with what we have. The love of money This is what will destroy us. This is what will be our idol. And this idol is a dead idol that will not give us eternal life. He who loves money, Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. If we love money, we will never be satisfied with it. How much is enough? How much is enough? You ask this question of somebody who is rich and he will hate you for asking that question because he is not satisfied with the amount of riches he has. He wants more and more and more. He wants more money for more and more fun and he gets creative with his fun. And after he has pursued something for a while and then he gets tired of it and then he uses his money to pursue some other fancy he has in his life and he pursues that for a while and he's dissatisfied with that and then he pursues something else. Constantly with this love of money, pursuing his indulgence of the flesh and of his lusts. But the scriptures teach us not to be that way. In fact, if we love money, we hate God. If we love money, we hate God. This is no exaggeration. This is no hyperbole. Our Lord Jesus himself taught us that in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
We either lay up treasures on earth or lay up treasures in heaven. We either live for the earth or we live for heaven, is his point. If we live for the earth, it might all go away by a thief or by rust. By a robber or rust, it might all go away. But not in heaven, because the king of heaven is there and he is the great protector. The king of heaven will make sure that nothing that we store up there is destroyed. It will last forever and ever. And then verses 22 to 23, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Therefore, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Our eyes, which seize upon wealth, which looks on it and lusts for, is greedy after, covetous after wealth, this is what has to be changed. It has to be different. We cannot have a dark eye or a bad eye that produces darkness in us, but we need to have eyes of light that see things clearly and rightly and live that way. And I said, if we love money, we hate God. No exaggeration. Christ says it in verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon, this is an Aramaic word for material possessions. You cannot love God and mammon, or simply money. You cannot love God, you cannot serve God and love money. It's impossible. Christ said it's impossible because we will have only one master. Either God will be our master who will tell us, who will teach us what we should do day by day with the possessions that we have. Just like a slave obeys the instructions and the commands of his master. In the same way, we ought to do the same. And if we love God, then we will despise and hate the things of the world. But if we love the things of the world, then we actually hate God. Now, you know that very, very few people walk around saying, I'm a God-hater. I hate God. Very few people do that. There are a few, but there's few, especially few in Christian churches. In the Christian church, few people will walk around saying, I'm a God-hater. But it doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what they say. It matters how they live. Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds... They deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Here our Lord says, if they love money and they show that by the way they live that they love money, they are God-haters. Regardless of what they say, whether they admit it or not, even if everybody says, no, 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 you're not a God-hater, you, don't, you, you, you do love God. No, it's not true. It's either one or the other. There is no other way to interpret Matthew 6, 24. We either love God or we love money. It's one or the other. Or we hate God or we hate money. Because we know the destructive nature of money, which we will see in a moment. But first, I'd like to show you um, some passages of the destruction, destructive use of money and then the constructive use of money both destructive and constructive. So on the destructive side, the destructive side first. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. 
1 Timothy 6, 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. In verse 6, godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment, which means that there can be no great gain and actually no godliness if there is no contentment. Godliness and contentment go together. Godliness and great gain with contentment all go together. Why? Seven says, we brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Like we saw in Job 1.21, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord shall take, uh, has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The apostle teaches us the same truth here. We brought nothing into the world. We're not going to take anything out of the world. So why is it that we hold on to things with our hands and put as much we can into our hands? He says in verse 8, what should contentment look like? If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Everyone needs to eat, right? So let's be content with the food we have. Now, he's not talking about indulgence in food. He's not talking about gluttony and drunkenness. He's not talking about that. He's talking about what people need daily to live. So be content with your daily amount of food, as we read in Matthew chapter 6. Give us this day our daily bread. In the same way, he teaches us here, be content with our daily portion of food and be happy with that. And that's okay, that God has provided for us our daily food and we should be thankful and happy that we have the food and also consider those who don't have it. And also covering with food and covering. We need clothing, correct? We need shelter, correct? We need this kind of covering and this is what we should seek. Seek for what Everyone basically needs in terms of clothing and shelter. And with these, be content. Really, the simple Christian life. The life of a man who loves money and pursues riches is not a simple life. It's a complicated life. It's full of anxieties and uncertainties. They, many of them cannot sleep at night because they don't know what's going to happen to their riches. They think about their riches and they can't sleep because they are worried about their investments. They're worried, for example, about the stock market or some other investments or whether some deal that they have just made will actually be successful or not, whether they are going to make millions with that deal or whether their deal maker, their partner, is going to be faithful and honest with the money and the negotiations and the work in the business or not. They are very nervous, very anxious about those things, and they have no contentment. They can't sleep. They can't even eat their food properly because they're so nervous about such things. So he says that in verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and snare many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Yes, 
They, yes, if you just pay attention to the people around you, just pay attention to the news, just pay attention even to Hollywood and all of the famous people who seem to have a peaceful and happy life without a care in the world. No, just pay attention and you will see the facts of their life. How is it that the, the stars of Hollywood can portray and the magazines and the movies portray that they have everything? They have health and they have wealth. They don't have a concern or care of the world. But just pay attention. Why is it that they had to have premarital fornication with 53, well, a woman with 53 different men before they married one? And then after they married, the marriage lasted for a year or two. And then they married five or six or seven or ten times different men. And they had children from all these different men. Their whole life is a mess. Their life is a mess. And how many of them eventually commit suicide? How many of them by age 30 or 40, suddenly their appearance changes because they were addicted to something? Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it was food. They were addicted to something and suddenly their appearance changed and they are the ugliest person you ever saw. This happens, right? This is what he's talking about. The love of money plunges men into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Many of the evils, all sorts of evils that we see come from this love of money. And it is so dangerous that many have want longing for it, some by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith. Those that came to Christ, made a profession of faith in Christ, in some way, maybe this profession of faith lasted a year or two, maybe even five years or more, but because they had this insatiable desire for this money, they wander away from the faith. They say, well, yeah, I don't believe that anymore. I used to believe it, but I don't believe it anymore. And they walk away. They walk away and they pierce themselves with many a pang. They have torment. They are tortured day by day because they know what they have pursued. They know what they could have had when they were walking in the faith temporarily and now they walk away from it and there's no joy. There is no happiness. There's only suffering. The pangs or the pains of life haunt them, torment them day by day. Another place where we might see that this is evident is in the book of 2 Kings. Of the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 5. Samuel, Kings, and then Chronicles. In the book of 2 Kings chapter 5. And verse 20, 2 Kings 5, 20. In this place, earlier in the chapter, Elisha the prophet had healed a man of leprosy. He healed a man of leprosy. And this man, being a prominent man, had some means. And he wanted to give Elisha the prophet some kind of reward or payment or, or honorarium, if you want to call it, for doing this miracle on his behalf and healing him of his leprosy. But Elisha said, no, no, I'm not going to take anything from you. Because Elisha wasn't after money. He wasn't after riches, even from a rich man. He didn't want it. And he wanted to make a statement on that, so he did not receive anything from this man who was healed. 
However, Elisha the prophet had a servant or a minister, a right-hand man to him named Gehazi. But Gehazi was different than Elisha. Let's see what Gehazi does. 2 Kings 5.20 But Gehazi, the servant of Elijah, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this Naaman, the Aramean, by not receiving from his hands what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. And Naaman said, Be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants. And they carried them before him. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. But he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. Then he said to him, that is, Elisha said to the servant, Gehazi, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cleave to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper as white as snow. The leprosy of Naaman was put on Gehazi. And why? Because he was greedy. He was greedy. He wanted this money and these possessions. Therefore, he was cursed for wanting those things. Another place, one more place where we will see a negative example is Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 18. Luke 18, 18. Here we will read of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler. Luke 18, 18. And a certain ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things impossible with men are possible with God. And Peter said, Behold, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or father, excuse me, house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come 
eternal life. In this case, this ruler, this ruler, ruler of a synagogue, so he's a religious man, and he's a wealthy religious man, and a young man, comes to Christ calling, calling him a good teacher and wanting to know what to do to obtain eternal life. And Christ says, why do you call me good? Which means only God is good. So if you're calling me good and only God is good, I'm about to tell you something and you better believe that this is good. I'm about to tell you something and you better believe that this is good. So Christ challenges him to keep the commandments. Uh, Avoid adultery, murder, theft, false witness, and then honor father and mother. The young man says, I've been doing this from my youth. Now, we know he was not telling the truth because there's no way any child, any child, always obeys his parents. There's no way. Absolutely not. And his parents are two witnesses to the fact that the child does not always obey. Right? Two witnesses. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact is to be confirmed. But he says that, and Jesus knows that what he's saying is not true. So Jesus goes to the heart of the matter to that which was the most valuable thing to him. And that that was his possessions. And he knew that if he addressed his possessions, he would walk away. As it says in the other accounts, that he was grieved and he walked away. He did not repent. He did not believe. He was unwilling to give up this love of money to follow Christ. Peter says that he and the rest of the apostles, yes, they did that, They gave up their possessions, our homes, to follow him. They did that. It's not as though they gave up every single penny they owned. That's not what the point is. The point is they showed their faith by not loving money. But this man, young ruler, did not have any faith. In fact, he became very sad. He wanted to hold on to his possessions, and he walked away without faith, without giving up a single penny. He walked away. And Christ says it's hard for a rich man, impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only God can change a man to remove this love of money and give him a love of God, which this man did not obtain. Now, some positive examples of this. The first one is in Luke 19. Luke 19, Luke 19, verse 1, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, Luke 19, verse 1, and he entered and was passing through Jericho, and behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich, and he was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature, and he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And, Jesus, and Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
Zacchaeus was a rich tax collector, and often the tax collectors were notorious for cheating the people, taking more taxes from the people than they should, and then pocketing the part that they took in, in excess, putting some for their governmental collection, but otherwise pocketing the rest of it. They were cheaters. And the people knew this. Zacchaeus, though, is so zealous to see Christ, to be eager to hear the gospel of Christ, that he, in a humble way, being a short man, climbs a tree to see Jesus. Not many people would do that if Jesus were walking by or a, or a preacher of a true, the true gospel were walking by and there's a crowd around him. Not many people would climb a tree to be able to see him and to be able to hear him. But the people know that this man is a sinner. He is notorious for cheating the people. So they grumble. But isn't that why Jesus came? Isn't that why Jesus came? He says in verse 10, to seek and to save that which was lost. He came for that purpose. Now, how does Zacchaeus show that he is a new man, that he has faith in Christ? He says, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. He, contrary to the rich young ruler, is saying, I will give up. I do believe, and I don't love my money anymore. I love you, Christ. And Jesus acknowledges this true faith by saying, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. He was a son of Abraham, literally, in genealogy and ancestry. He was a son of Abraham that way, but now he is spiritually a true believer. Another place we will see this is in the book of Galatians. Please turn to Galatians, another example of how those who do not love money live. Galatians 6, 6. Galatians 6, 6. And let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Now, this passage is often cited in terms of when we sin, we will be paid back for our sins, but if we practice righteousness, God will repay us back for righteousness, which is all true, which is what he teaches us in verses 7 and 8. And we should continue to practice righteousness in verses 7 and 8, because in due time, verse 9, we will reap if we don't grow weary. God will reward us for the righteousness that we practice. And this righteousness, however, notice, Verse 10 is another quoted verse often. Do good to all men, but especially to those who are of the household of the faith. We ought to help whoever is in need in however, whatever capacity the scriptures teach us to help those in need. We ought to help them, but especially to those who are in the household of the faith. Correct? Verse 10. And who is that? Those are in the body of Christ. And in our case, especially in the local church, but also in the body of Christ elsewhere. Local church and then the body of Christ elsewhere, it should proceed like that. But then the question, who in the local church? Everyone in the local church, right? 
That's what he says in verse 10. But in verse 6, where did he start? Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. So there he's talking about the elders or the pastors of the local church. Those who are taught in the local church should share all good things with him who teaches in the local church. That is primarily or first what he has in mind when he starts this paragraph, verse 6. Make sure that the pastor is supported with all good things. Reap in this way so that you will sow or harvest in this way. In due time, God will reward you in your Christian life. And then he summarizes everything in verse 10. Do good to everyone, but especially to those in the household of the faith. There, a positive example. If we do not love money, what will we do with our money? Then, finally, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. 528. Excuse me, not 528, 428. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 428. Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let him who steals steal no longer. The Ten Commandments teach you shall not steal. Those who are covetous, those who are greedy, those who don't want to obtain wealth in the proper way, they love money in such a way that they misuse the acquisition of money. They do it in the wrong way, so they steal. So any thief, he should quit his thievery and labor, work. Earn a daily living. Earn a daily living, work and labor, perform with his own hands what is good. So do good work. So instead of being a drug dealer, don't be a drug dealer anymore. Use your hands for good things. Why don't you build a building? Why don't you become a carpenter? Why don't you do something else? Something that is constructive, do what's good with your hands instead of what's destructive with your hands. Why? Not just to provide for himself, and his family, which is right and good, he should, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. We ought to consider not only providing for ourselves and our own families, but also providing for others who might have need. Share your possessions, share your money with those who have need. When you see a genuine need, not just anyone who is trying to hoodwink you and pretend that he doesn't have any money, he's a beggar, or some other situation. And many times this happens within families, that you have a freeloader in the family. You have a freeloader in the family who doesn't want to work, who is not grateful, who does not share, who does not provide for his own needs and for the needs of his own family members, and he's looking for others in the family, others among the relatives, who have wealth to give him wealth. This is not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to labor, perform good deeds with our own hands, and then be able to share with those who have a genuine need, a genuine need, an accident, a health crisis, something like that that might arise and they might not have the necessary means to make payments for those kinds of crises in their life. Share with him who has need. That's the way it should be. 
Let's continue now in Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. He further teaches us in Hebrews 13 and verse 5, being content with what you have. Being content with what you have. He teaches us that if we do have this contentment, in 13.16, he says, Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Those who are content will share and please God by the sacrifices that they have. We see also in Philippians 4, 4.10. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, what it means to be content. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 10. The apostle explains. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He, in this letter, one of the things he does is to commend the Philippians for helping him, helping him, but he's also reminding them that though it's good for the Philippians to help the Apostle Paul with his own needs, he had already learned, even before this circumstance in his life, to be content in any and every circumstance. Whether he had a little or whether he had a lot, God taught him to be content, not to be chasing wealth, not to be anxious, not to be losing sleep. Whether he had a little or a lot, he was content with whatever came his way. And how did he do it? Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Your Bible might say through Christ who strengthens me. It is in Christ and the strength of Christ by the spirit of Christ that we will be sustained and strengthened to be content. A life of simplicity and contentment. Not hoarding, not greedy, not anxious, but content. And remember, we read earlier Matthew chapter 6, where Christ taught us not to be anxious and men of little faith wondering and worrying about how we're going to be fed, how we're going to clothe ourselves. Not to worry and wonder about any of those things, but to be content and to trust God. Because if God will take care of the grass of the field, the lilies of the field, and the birds of the air, if God will take care of those lesser creatures who are not made in the image of God, will he not take care of you, O men of little faith? Be content and know that God will take care of us, knowing who he is, and knowing his promises, knowing his promises, which he cites in Hebrews 13. Quoting from a passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 31, 6, he says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Knowing who it is who's speaking and what it is he promises. He himself, God himself has promised, the creator of the ends of the earth, the creator of the whole universe, 
the creator of us, who has created us in a marvelous way and sustained us up to this point in a marvelous way. If he's done it so far, he takes care of us, he takes care of the rest of creation. Know who it is that's speaking. We're not talking about an idol that will take care of our needs, a dead idol that has eyes but cannot see, that has a mouth but cannot speak. We're not talking about an idol. We're not talking about a tree. We don't pray to a tree, oh tree, help me with my needs. We don't pray to the birds. We don't pray to the snakes. We don't pray to the cows. We don't pray to the monkeys. We don't pray to any of the created beings. Those things are idols. The pagans, the Gentiles, the unbelievers pray to those objects, but we don't pray to them. We pray to the true and living God, the creator of the ends of the earth, who has announced his word in this word of assurance. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. I will never, because you belong to me. You are a part of the body of Christ. You are a part of the family of God. You are one who belongs to his sheep. Remember what Jesus said, John chapter 10. John 10 and verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father, we are one. The Father and the Son, who have strength, who have power, who work together, they have us as sheep, right? We are his sheep. And the sheep, he, we are known by Christ, and we follow Christ, and Christ gives us eternal life, and we shall never perish, and no one will snatch us out of the Father's hand or the hand of the Son. No one is greater No one is greater than they, especially the Father, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So if we are in His possession, He will never forsake us. He will never forsake us. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? We need to believe whatever the Word says. If the Word says we are His sheep and we belong to Him, then nothing is going to separate us from Him because He has power and He has the ability to provide for us now and for all eternity. Romans 8. Romans 8.31. Romans 8.31, we have an expansive explanation of this very fact that he will never desert us and never forsake us. Romans 8.31. Explaining our salvation and how we are in Christ by the power of Christ. 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? All of these marvelous things he just explained. If God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Freely or generously, graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who also intercedes for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, 
For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, absolutely nothing, will separate us from Christ our Lord. Nothing. So, should we not believe it? If we have these wonderful promises, should we not believe it? Indeed. And not only should we believe it, we should believe it with confidence. With confidence. For he says to us in Hebrews 13, verse 6, Once we know, once we have this assurance of who God is and that he will never forsake us, verse 6, what should it produce in us? So that we confidently say, Confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? This is the confidence that we must have in the Christian life. We are not to live the Christian life moping around, despondent, discouraged. We should not be like that. We should have confidence. We should have conviction. We should have assurance. We should have this knowledge, this peace and joy knowing that God will take care of us even when we have tribulation, even when we have persecution against us. We should have confidence, confidence, and people should see that confidence, even if we are on bed, in our bed and we are in pain. People should see that we have confidence in our Lord. Whatever people might say against us, the slander that people might rail against us, we should have confidence that we are going to be protected by God. And we, what will we say? The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Citing Psalm 118, verse 6. He cites Psalm 118, verse 6 to say, The Lord is my help, helper. I will not be afraid. If God is our helper, there's no need to fear. Turn with me to Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51, verse 12. 51, 12. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, or, and of the Son of Man who is made like grass? that you have forgotten the Lord your Maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, that you fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor as he makes ready to destroy. But where is the fury of the oppressor? The exile will soon be set free and will not die in the dungeon, nor will his bread be lacking. Ah, for I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens, to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. Verse 12, he announces first, I, even I, am he who comforts you, like it says in Hebrews. For he himself has said, 
I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Know who it is who's speaking. It is the God of heaven. And he's the one who gives us comfort. And if we have this comfort, we have this confidence, and we can say, the Lord is my helper. Then it would be natural to ask, when we are afraid, when we do not have this confidence, what's the problem? Verse 12, who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and of the son of man who is made like grass? Now, in this case, son of man does not mean Christ, the son of man. It's talking about the average man. Why are we afraid of a man who dies and who's made like grass? Grass is here today, gone tomorrow. Men are here today, they're gone tomorrow. We don't last forever. So what is the problem when we are afraid of man? Our pride. Our pride. Our pride is in the way when we are afraid of man. Our pride. Because he says, who are you? And when the scripture always, uh, rebukes us with who are you, it's doing that because pride makes us think we're something when we're nothing. We are nothing, so our pride should not get in the way that we fear man. Not at all. Instead, what should we do, verse 13? Remember our maker. Our maker stretched out the heavens, laid the foundation of the earth. We should not fear, but know who God is, the great creator. And then he says, we should not continually fear the fury of the oppressor because he's getting ready to destroy us. Because God says, where is the fury of the oppressor? Yes, temporarily he might do something to you, but not permanently. In this world he might do something to you, but not in the world to come. In the world to come, that fury of the oppressor is going to be squashed. He's going to ex extinguish that furious fire of the oppressor. And that oppressor is going to be nothing. He's going to be like chaff which is blown away in the wind or burned up in a pile of chaff. That's the way the, the oppressor is going to be. God promises in verse 14 what he will do for us. Set us free. We're not going to die in the dungeon. He's going to provide for our bread, our daily bread. He is the one who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. It is the Lord who has the mighty power to control the seas. Do you? Do our enemies? No. God does. So trust the God who controls the heavens, the earth, and the seas. And note, verse 16, he puts his words in our mouth. He will teach us what we should say, what we should do by his Holy Spirit. He is the one who covers us with the shadow of his hand, just like the people were covered with the shadow of the clouds by day and the fire by night to keep them protected in the desert, the people of Israel. He's going to cover us with the shadow of his hand to protect us. This is the one who established the earth, who founded the heavens and the earth. And he says to Zion, that's you and me, you are my people. If we belong to him, don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't fear what man might do. And why also should we not fear what man might do? Because of what Christ taught us in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, that God is our helper and that we should not what fear what man might do. Matthew chapter 10, he teaches us as his disciples in verse 28. 
We'll read Matthew 10, 28 to 33. What should we do instead? Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Verse 28, Christ teaches us not to fear men who can only kill our bodies. Yes, that is a bad thing that they might do, a harmful and painful thing that they might do to us, kill our bodies, But what is more harmful and painful, according to Christ? Rather fear Him, that is His Father, God the Father, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Men can't kill our souls in the lake of fire, but God, God can put our souls and bodies in the lake of fire in hell. Fear God for this reason, not man, but God. And also, 29, have assurance of the love and concern of God, the providence of God, the care of God for us in 29 and 29 to 31. Sparrows. Sparrows are sold for a cent. Two for a cent. For a small amount of money. But they don't die unless your heavenly Father permits them to die. Right? Not only that, but the hairs of your head are all numbered. We cannot number them, but God can. And He knows how many hairs we have every day. Whether we increase or decrease in the amount of hair we have, He knows all of it. He is that meticulous in His knowledge and in His providence. That meticulous in His knowledge and providence that He is providentially, because of His love and compassion toward us, caring for us, so don't fear. We're of more value than many sparrows. There, are, there is not any number of sparrows that you can amass that's going to be more valuable than one of us because we are created in the image of God and we belong to God by the blood of Christ. So don't fear. And also be prepared for the day of judgment. If we confess Christ before men, Christ will confess us before the Father. But if we deny Christ before men, Christ will deny us before the Father. Returning to what he said in verse 28. We don't want to be Christ deniers. We want to be Christ confessors. Therefore, let's trust that God is our helper and that man can't really do anything of eternal significance against us because God will protect us. Right? Now, all of this is well and good to hear it. Is it not? It's well and good to hear it, that God will never leave us, and that God is our helper, and man cannot overcome the almighty power of God. It's well and good to hear it. It pleases our ears. However, it takes faith, daily faith, to believe it. Remember Hebrews 11.6, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. It's impossible to please him. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Romans 14, 23. 
Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. It's true. We must believe that what these words are saying are true. They are coming from heaven, from the God of heaven down to us, and these are true. This is what now God calls on us to do, to actually believe that what we've heard is true. And if we believe it is true, then we will believe in the character of God, the goodness of God, and not forsake it. Trust that when Christ says, I am with you always, even until the end of the age, that he will be with us always until the end of the age. When God announces his goodness that is in store for us, we believe it. Shall we believe it? Let's believe it and love God with all of our heart and soul and might. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.